Welcome to the Great Lakes Fishing Podcast presented by Fishhawk Electronics. If you're looking for news, tips, and stories about fishing the Great Lakes, you've come to the right place. And now your host, Chris Larson. Welcome to the Great Lakes Fishing Podcast. Today we're joined by Tyler Hicks from the Spilt Milk YouTube channel. And this is the Great Lakes Fishing Channel. Today we're going to be talking salmon fishing, but we're not going to be talking Great Lakes. Uh, Tyler, appreciate having you on. Thanks for coming to the show today. Happy to be here. Well, most people on the show are Great Lakes anglers, uh, but I wanted to have a Western angler on the show. And not only do you fish in different areas, but you fish out of a kayak. Um, You have 24,000 subscribers on YouTube. You've got a great YouTube following. But I think our audience, a little bit different, probably... A lot of them probably have never heard of you. So you can tell us a little bit about you and your channel. Yeah, so I'm a Pacific Northwest-based uh, channel. So I spend most of my time fishing uh, in Washington and Oregon and Idaho. Uh, I fish during the open water season. I'm primarily fishing out of Old Town uh, kayaks. These are their pedal drive kayaks, although I've also played with some of their paddle and motorized versions. And uh, because I live in the interior part of the Northwest, a lot of people don't know that uh, we have a very long ice fishing season here. We have great ice fishing opportunities for a variety of species of trout, perch, crappie, things like that. And so um, I'll spend most of November, we usually get first ice by the first week of November, uh, all the way through uh, March doing ice fishing before I transition back to uh, open water. And we have some open water too during the winter time for a walleye on the Columbia River and some of its impoundments. Very cool. Uh, the channel is called Spilt Milt. How did you come up with that name? So I've, I'm sure your uh, most of your audience knows what milt is. Um, I'm just kind of it was kind of a play on on words. Uh, my background is I'm a biologist, so I went to graduate school and specialize in. Uh, ecotoxicology, um, wildlife ecology, and statistics. And so I've, I've always been really tied in uh, with, with biology. And so I was just trying to think of a clever name. And when I started my YouTube channel about 10 years ago, it was just something to do for fun on the, uh, on the weekends. And it's become much more of a, a passion of mine as it's gone on. So probably not the most appropriate uh, YouTube name, but I'm sticking with it because it's got brand recognition, I guess. Yeah, you brought that up. You've been doing this for 10 years. How has how has YouTube changed over the last 10 years, not just for yourself, but what you see kind of in, in the in that fishing category? Yeah, so, um, of course, we've, we've seen um, some groups uh, like the Guggen Squad and stuff. They've really blown up. Um, and you just basically had guys who were just strapping GoPros to their chest, becoming these multi-million dollar companies. So people have definitely seen opportunity uh, to... Um, make money off of YouTube. And I've, I've found that uh, over time that YouTube has been more accommodating towards that. But more importantly for me, um, I, my main interest is primarily in educating and recruiting new anglers. And, and uh, I think that, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is that uh, second to, to Google, YouTube is the largest search engine on uh, the internet. And uh, there's a lot of people who want to get into fishing who don't have mentors um, and they turn to YouTube. And so YouTube's become a mentor. And so, you know, part of my goal is to produce educational and formal uh, informational content that uh, really helps those people out who are, 
you know, just getting into the sport or also looking to advance their skills after they've gotten into the sport, but don't necessarily have that tight uh, mentorship uh, that I had growing up because I, my dad was a fisherman. So I learned a lot of about fishing and ethics from my dad, but a lot of people don't have that uh, nowadays. So uh, I really appreciate having that aspect of my channel. Yeah. And you said you were a biologist and that's one of the things I really enjoy about your channel is not only are you talking about products and how to use them and just kind of the tactical end of it, but you talk a lot about the fish and the fishery and how all of those dynamics come together. Can you tell us a little bit about that and kind of how you work that into your content? Yeah. So I think, you know, a big part of um, how I approach any problem in my, in my career as a biologist and also as an angler is that, um, you know, fish are just animals and they are, uh, their behavior is guided by a number of factors. Some of those factors are abiotic. So those are the things like, you know, water temperature, weather, pressure, all those things that are um, affecting them. water chemistry, uh, time of day length and things like that. And then there's all those biotic factors. So that's the food base, their predators and things like that. And so, you know, understanding those relationships help make me a better angler and another thing that I, I think that gives uh, me some advantages, I guess, over some uh, some other anglers is I tend to be very uh, methodical in my approach to fishing. Um, I always say I, my approach to fishing is hypothesis-based fishing. So I'm always going out. I have come up with these ideas. I go out and I test these ideas out on the water. If they don't pan out, then you try something new. And that's just the nature of science. It's very iterative. You keep doing things over and over again until you get a consistent result. And I think being able to break that down really helps me um, understand uh, why I'm having success rather than just saying, oh, I did well today. Um, a lot of people can't really pinpoint exactly why. And, and I really want to know why. Yeah. It's not just, Hey, I caught a fish. Woo. You really break down why, when, where, kind of what it's all about and, and how you did it. And the other thing that, I mean, there's just, to me, I think you could sit there and get buried in, in your YouTube channel because to me, there's just so many interesting things there. Uh, but you fish out of a kayak. Uh, yeah. Tell us a little bit about the advantages to fishing out of a kayak. Why did you choose that to, to really tackle these waterways that you're on? Yeah, so um, my uh, choice to fish out of a kayak actually bore out of just practicality. At the time, I was leaving grad school and was just a poor grad student. And uh, it was the most economical way for me to get out on the water. Here in the Northwest, you know, we've got lots of opportunities. We've got offshore and the salt and big rivers and big waters. And we also got a lot of small water, too. And, you know, these sit on top kayaks, which, you know, if a wave uh, breaks over the top, they just drain through. And when I started getting into this, this was um, in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, you know, the pedal drive systems were just coming onto the market. And, you know, the, our leg muscles are a much larger muscle group. So we have the ability to cover a lot more water. It frees up your hands for fishing. And I just immediately uh, fell in love with that experience, the, the physicality of it. Um, it's, it really makes it a, a much more enjoyable experience to me. It's also very challenging, um, but there's some advantages that uh, kayaks offer too in terms of they're very stealthy. Um, they're very inconsistent in their troll speed because it's just hard to maintain a tight troll speed. And sometimes I feel like I come away with more fish because of that. Um, and, you know, they're, you can drop them in on virtually any body of water. So I feel like they do offer a, a lot of advantages. And of course, recently um, I did a big tour of the Western United States and, and uh, all the way actually out to Connecticut chasing kokanee salmon. 
And, you know, the, the gas prices were pretty tough this past summer. And it's a lot easier to handle that when you just have a kayak on your roof rack and you're driving around and still pulling 25, 28 miles per gallon on the highway. So, yeah, those are the advantages. Tell me about some of the challenges. You said challenge. Tell me about those. What are the, what are the things that make it difficult to do that? Yeah. So, I mean, they are a small craft. So, um, you know, big water can be really challenging, especially wind. Um, for me as a, as a content producer, um, also it adds challenges too, because there's really no protection on a kayak. So, you know, uh, it can really destroy audio, but, uh, you know, getting out on big water can be really challenging. High current is, you know, there's only, you can only go so fast. Um, you know, our, our top sustainable speeds for me and my kayaks is generally around three and a half, four miles per hour. And I can only sustain that for, you know, 30, 45 minutes. Uh, so it's really challenging to uh, to work in current. There's also just safety concerns. Um, you uh, you're out there sharing the water with much larger watercraft, some commercial, some recreational, and um, no matter how many flags and things I throw up, uh, throw up on my kayak or bright clothing I wear, it's always uh, something I'm concerned with being run over. And then just the covering ground is, is really challenging. So like, you know, I was fishing like Flaming Gorge and, you know, the distance between the hot spots is, you know, six to 10 miles sometimes at a time. And it's, uh, it's really challenging to cover those distances. So when you commit to an area, you kind of are stuck there for the day. And I think that's one of the toughest things is like, you'll commit to a fishing area for that day. You go out there, you're pounding water. You got buddies texting you from the other spots telling you they're getting into the fish there. And there's really no easy way to pick up and just roll up there to that spot. So you always have to be thinking about the next day and where you're going to launch. You've got a really wide variety of content on your channel. You, you know, get into tactical stuff. You've done destination shows. You do product stuff. Uh, one of the things I saw in there that I think would interest our audience is you did uh, downrigger tips for kayaks. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of people think if you're fishing a kayak, well, you're not using downriggers. That's not something you can put on a kayak. Tell me a little bit about that, that downrigger setup and how you use that on a kayak and how it might be different from something that someone would have on a boat. Yeah. So um, what makes uh, kayak downrigger fishing a little bit challenging is all about safety and balance and tracking of the, of the kayak. So the first thing you have to do is just overcome is just find uh, the real estate for a, for a downrigger. There's, there's not a lot of space on some modern fishing kayaks. Some of those are, they're getting bigger and heavier every year and uh, there's more and more space to mount downriggers. But uh, even on my smallest, fastest kayaks, uh, the old town Salty 120, which is a 12 foot pedal drive kayak designed for saltwater fishing. It's very fast and lightweight. Um, I still am able to mount a small Canon Lake Troller. Now you have to make modifications. Um, one of the problems with a lot of downriggers, they have very long booms. They're designed to get out away from the railing of a boat and spread your gear out. Uh, you don't really want a long boom because that's gonna cause the kayak to, the drag of that downrigger ball is gonna cause your tracking to be thrown off. And you can compensate a little bit with, uh, with rudder systems on most of these kayaks. But what I do is I end up chopping down that boom bring that uh, downrigger ball and line really tight to the to the side of the kayak and you, you virtually can't notice it for tracking and then uh, I'll switch out the steel cable for braid I do that for a couple reasons one braid has way less blowback and we I'll run down to like a hundred pound braid on the downrigger balls um, mostly not running anything heavier than six pound 
and uh, and the braid's also nice because if you were get in a situation, a dangerous situation where your kayak flipped or you got wrapped up in that line, I always have a safety knife. It's a lot easier to cut braid than steel cable. Um, but yeah, that main thing is just trying to get that that downrigger as tight to the kayak to center it up and reduce the instability it adds to it. Um, but you know, with a six pound ball, I, I barely notice much more effort in trolling. When you get up around eight and higher, you really start to feel the drag on the kayak. So, but six pound is, is pretty good for hitting um, most depths that we're going to be targeting here uh, in the Northwest. So. What does that spread usually look like if you're running the downrigger? Um, you know, how many other rods do you typically run and, and what do those rods look like? What are you doing with those to deploy those? Yeah. So, um, what I use is almost all kayaks now come with uh, what they call gear track systems. This allows you to uh, install rod holders without having to drill holes in your kayak. Um, a lot of people have apprehension about that because fishing kayaks are expensive now. They're in the two to $5,000 range. And with these gear track systems, um, you can just put these gear track bases in. And then what I use is uh, ram mounts. And the reason I use ram mounts is they, uh, it, they make a lot of different variety of products that will fit into these gear track systems, really geared in for kayak anglers specifically. Um, they employ kayak anglers in their factory, you know, several of my friends. And so they really have a mind for this. And uh, they have these dual bolt bases so that if I'm out there trolling and a king salmon slams my gear, it's not going to rip the whole... Uh, rod holder off the side of the kayak. Uh, so with that double gear track uh, T-bolt base, it's locked in there solid. And then I use some extension arms to really push my gear out away, right? So this is the great challenge is you don't want your gear to get tangled, especially when you're zigging and zagging to, to entice that strike. Um, you want to create some spread. So what I will do um, when I'm running two rods, that's the maximum rods we're allowed to run in any of the Northwest states. We don't we don't get to run all the all those rods that you guys in the Great Lakes get to do, but uh, we'll run a spread of two rods. I'll have um, the extension arms pushing them out another 14, 15 inches off the side of the kayak. I'll have one clipped into a downrigger, and then on the other one, I'm going to use um, you know either sliding weights or snap weights. Um, usually, pretty significant if I'm doing king fishing, uh, king salmon fishing. You know, maybe using 16 ounces um, or if I'm doing things like trout or kokanee salmon, I might just be running anywhere from one to four ounces of, of lead on the other rod. And that way I can push one rod further back and then uh, I can have my downrigger rod, you know, set a little bit shorter distance so that the odds that the two lines will tangle or are reduced. Very cool. Uh, tell me about the electronics. What do you run for electronics on your kayak? Yeah, so uh, I run Hummingbird um, Helix units. Um, they're very efficient, cost-effective. Um, so I primarily rely on sonar uh, for most of my troll fisheries for walleye and trout salmon. And then, um, you know, there are times when I'm pursuing reef fish or uh, I'm jigging for walleye. And that's when I'm going to transition to those uh, down imaging and side imaging, um, which I do have... Uh, on my units and so i use the mega down imaging and mega side imaging just the clarity of that is is really spectacular you can really pick apart a uh, structure that fish are holding on and you know uh the columbia river is just renowned for its uh walleye fishing like we have world-class walleye fishing we have 
generous limits on the upper river where I fish, which is eight fish. And in the lower river, they don't even have limits. Um, that's a different con conversation altogether. But, um, you know, one of the things that I, I really like about the down imaging and side imaging for these species is um, I did some camera work last year with my Markham. And, you know, for the longest time, I, I had somehow convinced myself that walleye were deeply associated with heavy cobble on the bottom of the Columbia River. And because that's when I'd make contact with it when I was jigging uh, for them. And I do mostly vertical jigging and 60 to 100 foot of water. That's where our walleye live on the bottom and 60 to 100 foot of water. Um, I was putting the camera down there. And these walleye are actually sitting at that transition zone between these habitats. So it's where it goes from sand to, to cobble. You, they would just be stacked in there like cordwood, just hundreds and hundreds of walleye for as far as you could see. And uh, using the down imaging and side imaging, now I'm able to pick apart that habitat uh, very quickly and just mark it on a map. And I can just go through and drift through there, even though I may not mark the fish because they're so tight to the bottom. I'm picking them up, um, jigging. It's really remarkable. Very cool. Tell me about uh, some other tools that, that you feel like they're on your kayak and, and you couldn't fish without. We talked about electronics, talked about the downrigger. Um, what are some other things that you have on your boat that you're like, man, everybody needs to have one of these? Yeah. So, I mean, first and foremost, um, being on a kayak, you're a lot tighter to the water, a lot more exposed to the environment. So, um, and, you know, PFD is like a seatbelt for me. I have that thing on all the time. Um, during the winter months, I'm going out uh, and trolling in open water for for walleye and kokanee um, on Lake Roosevelt, which is the one of the bigger reservoirs on the Upper Columbia. You know, air temperatures are going to be in the upper 20s, low 30s. Um, so I'll wear a full uh, uh, dry suit. Um, so if I go in the water, uh, if I didn't have that, I would have maybe 30, 45 seconds before I'm going to lose all de dexterity without the dry suit. I've never gone in the water um, in those frigid conditions, but um, I know that that dry suit's going to give me those few extra minutes to flip the boat back over, get in, and facilitate some kind of self-rescue where I can get in, get to the shore and warm up. Um, so that's a pretty critical one. But I say one of the more critical ones that uh, I always carry with me is my uh, my safety knife. Um, there's a story behind this. Um, so uh, I, when I troll on the Columbia River, I use very heavy gear, especially in the lower Columbia below Bonneville Dam. Um, I'm going to run 65 pound braid as my main line. Uh, seems a bit overkill, but part of the reason for that is, is um, we have a lot of sea lions and seals in the lower river that will take your salmon. So the goal when you hook one of these fish is just to get them in to the net as fast as possible before one of the, uh, one of the furry mammals picks up on what you're doing and comes and takes your dinner. And um, because of using that heavy gear, there was a spring that I was uh, kayaking during heavy outflows and uh, hung up on a wing dam. And I had, this was early in my kayak fishing career, about 10 years ago, I hung up on a wing dam and I had a rod leash at the time. I was using rod leashes just in case I dropped the rod, I'd get it back. Um, well, with that hitting that wing dam and I had the drag set just a little bit too tight and the current, it turned the kayak, the, the current bit into the kayak, flipped it. And in the process of flipping and going into the water, uh, it wrapped the uh, rod leash around my neck and the flasher was hung up on the braid and everything was all hung up on a wing dam. 
and that's attached to the rod. Then this is attached to the rod is attached to my neck, and my kayak's going this way. So I could see the surface, but I couldn't swim up to it. So I was trapped underwater, and just had that moment where I was like, "This is it, you know. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go down this way." And I remember I had a, that safety knife. I popped that thing off. I cut that rod leash. And it sliced my PFD wide open in, in, the, in the mild panic that was going on. And uh, I bobbed right up to the surface and was uh, was fine. Like that. That's what saved my life is because I just had that knife on my uh, PFD. So that little NRS safety knife saved it. Wow, wow. That's that's a scary story, man. That's a uh... That was a, a lot of good thinking and, and some preparation that when you did it, you probably didn't realize how important it was when you put that knife on there. But uh, yeah, that, yeah, that's a that's a heck of a story. Um, let's get into some more fun things. Uh, your Kokanee Across America series is a big feature on your channel. Uh, I think a lot of our audience um, probably have never heard of Kokanee, and I would guess that many of them probably have never seen one. Uh, tell us a little bit. What, what are Kokanee? Yeah, so kokanee um, are just landlocked sockeye salmon. Um, so their origin is that um, sockeye salmon, unlike a lot of our other salmon species like chinook, coho, and things, you know, those fish uh, return to natal rivers to spawn, and then um, you know they emerge and then hatch, smolt, and then move downstream back to either the Great Lakes or the ocean, depending on where you're at. Sockeye um, will actually spawn in rivers and in lakes, and the the juveniles, um, after they hatch from the eggs, will spend their first you know year smolt going through smoltification in lakes, and some of them um, just hang out and don't ever go to the ocean, and they become freshwater salmon. And so a lot of uh, of agencies, fish and wildlife agencies, recognized the value in these landlocked. Uh, sockeye salmon fisheries so they started introducing them all across the west and they do very well on hatchery programs and and a lot of times they can self-establish because um, they can shore spawn they can spawn in incoming streams and they're a very low cost uh, fish to produce and they taste absolutely delicious so they feed on plankton they're a plankton feeder if you look in the mouth of a kokanee they've got these things called rakers it looks like baleen on a whale. And these fish swim around and they filter out uh, plankton in the water, zooplankton. And their their meat becomes this vibrant red because of all the carotenoids in their in their food. So just they cut just like an ocean salmon. They're very rich in fat. They taste amazing. They fight extremely hard. Um, they are uh, variable in their size. So in very productive lakes, they can get large four to six pounds or larger but the average is going to be closer to one pound um and but they like i said they taste uh phenomenal and a lot of states give us really generous limits of anywhere from five to 25 fish depending on the lake yeah they are they're super cool fish but they don't get very big the world record less than 10 pounds so what makes them special to you and so many other people that go after them what is it about this fish that just makes people tick. Yeah, I think that uh, there's a couple things here. Uh, one is it just gives everybody, even if you're in Colorado, access to uh, salmon, right? To to eat fresh salmon. And uh, to me, it, it you can't separate like the taste from ocean run fish and these 
uh, landlocked versions. They taste phenomenal. Um, but they're also very finicky. And I think, I think that's part of what drives people is, um, they can be very challenging. They require very specific troll speeds. They live at very specific, uh, temperature ranges. Um, and they have, uh, they just respond very differently to colors and scents at different times of the year. I think people really enjoy the challenge of that. And then, like I said, you get uh, the opportunity to usually take home a fair number of fish as part of your limit. So I think people really enjoy that. And overall, I, I mean, honestly, I feel like they fight just phenomenal. I mean, especially in the spring when they're feeding near surface, these things just go absolutely aerial. I mean, they're just doing flips, jumping all over the place. They're just a lot of fun. And we all tend to run relatively light gear for them. So it, it makes it a, a real hoot to catch them. Yeah, they're usually kind of found out west, but uh, in your Coconut Cross America series, you went all the way to Connecticut to catch these fish. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about that, that trip to Connecticut. Yeah, so yeah, I've um, I, my Coconut obsession dates back to the early part of my uh, kayaking career, just because one of my local lakes had them, and um, I was always really interested in kokanee fisheries east of the Mississippi. Uh, they used to be a lot more widespread. Um, there are populations in Wisconsin, a, a very small population, which doesn't really support much of a fishery, but it's self-sustaining. There's uh, There were populations in New York, and there were uh, populations in North Carolina, and I think they're working on restoring those. But interestingly, uh, they've been raising them since the 1950s, uh, self-sustaining populations in hatchery supported in in Connecticut. So they they take local brood stock and, and harvest eggs from those annually and they use it to to stock uh, a number of lakes in Connecticut. Now that number has gone up and down through time uh, because they've had challenges with uh, alewife and zebra mussels and quagga mussels competing uh, for food resources. But they've managed to sustain an East Coast kokanee population uh, for uh, 70 years. And what was really interesting is on my trip out there, uh, we, we literally flew in like at midnight into Hartford. We drive over to West Hill Pond, which is the, the best kokanee fishery in Connecticut. It's a dinky little pond that has uh, like, uh, like 12 horsepower motor restrictions. Like it's basically just a kayaker's paradise because there's no large power boats on it. And we roll up there and there's a couple guys who were older gentlemen who had, uh, watched my channel and they were really excited but they had been fishing coconut since the 1950s like wow. they're when they were kids you know and i'm just like these guys have been fishing coconut for 70 years <laughs> that's impressive that's awesome same same pond they looked like they were still just as thrilled to be out there catching their limit that day as we were you you did a bunch of western places as well what are some of your favorite spots out west to, to go chase these coconut yeah. So there's, you know, for the, for me, the challenge uh, with Kokanee and picking my favorite places in the West is that um, I, one of the reasons that uh, I moved from, I grew up in Kansas and couldn't get out of there fast enough was uh, just the natural beauty of the Western United States. And uh, Kokanee tend to live in very beautiful places because they like these deep mountainous lakes. Um, it's just always stunning to go out on the morning on these lakes and uh, see the sunrise over the mountains. Uh, but my favorite lakes, um, in terms of size, uh, hands down this year, um, Fontenelle Reservoir in remote uh, southwest Wyoming was amazing. Uh, it's a very cold reservoir that uh, is fed by the Green River. So unlike a lot of kokanee fisheries, you know, kokanee will start out on the surface in the spring 
and then they're going to move deep and they can get uh, pretty deep, you know, by mid to late summer, a lot of lakes, they're going to be 40, 60 feet, um, even 120, 150 feet deep in some lakes. And so it's, it's not quite as fun uh, catching them off the, off the downrigger as it is mm -hmm. flatlining them on the surface. Cause when they hit on the surface, as soon as they hit, they're just jumping and spiraling back there behind you. You can hear them splashing. So it's a hoot. And Fontenelle never really gets warm because it's just got this constant flow of really cold water. So those fish are always right on the top. And uh, I don't think I caught a fish there that was under three pounds. So it's a very impressive uh, fishery. It's extremely in the middle of nowhere, though. Like, I live in the middle of nowhere, and that place is even more <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. So, yeah, that was definitely the highlight lake. But uh, there were some other ones that were really stunning, like Strawberry Reservoir in, in Utah. It's just gorgeous settings. And Wallawa Lake in Oregon is, is absolutely stunning. The mountains just tower over the top of it. And there's tons of kokanee there. Yeah. A lot, a lot of really fun places out there. The scenery is, is really amazing, especially for people who live, you know, in the Midwest where everything's really flat and yeah. you get out there and it's just, it's pretty stunning everywhere you go. Uh, one of the cool things that I enjoy about the the kokanee kind of fishery, but, but really the people around it, you know, there's Facebook groups for just about everything. And of course there's Facebook groups for, for kokanee. And, you know, I belong to a ton of different fishing Facebook groups. But one of the things that stands out to me about the Kokanee guys is that there's very few trolls in that community. And it seems like, you know, people will show a whole bunch of fish and all you ever see is great job, man. That's awesome. You know, and you don't see that in a lot of other places. What's it like for you to kind of encounter? You talked about running into the old timers in Connecticut. What's it like for you to kind of encounter these people when you're out in your travels? Yeah, so I think this is probably something I overlooked about what I like most about kokanee fishing is that, by and large, kokanee anglers are probably the friendliest group of people you'll ever meet. Um, nine times out of ten, most people are just going to tell you what they were fishing, where they were fishing, how deep the fish were. Uh, you know, a lot of our kokanee fisheries... It's, they're not like uh, harvest isn't a, a factor that uh, I think puts these populations at risk at all. Um, kokanee are very prolific. And what's really interesting is, you know, the more har more you harvest from a kokanee population, the, uh, the bigger the fish are just going to get because you're just removing fish from the population that are competing for food resources. And the, one of the things that predicts kokanee size is uh, kokanee density. So the more kokanee there are, the more stunted they're going to be. The less there are, the bigger they're going to be. And I think a lot of guys appreciate that. A lot of our kokanee fisheries are sustained through hatchery plants. And the ones that spawn in the wild, often those lakes are overpopulated because they're just so good at reproducing. Um, so they have a lot of reproductive potential. And um, I think part of that's what plays into it. And uh, everybody's just really willing to share and uh, help other anglers out. And I really appreciate that about the sport. And that's one of the things like you'll notice, like um, people are always astounded by when they follow my channel. I mean, nine times out of 10, I'm just going to tell everybody where I'm at, where I'm, and what I'm fishing and, and, and how and when. Uh, because most of the time, my only concern when I'm talking about fishing kokanee lakes is that, is there enough parking to handle increased pressure? Uh, or is there enough boat ramps for access? Uh, otherwise, I'm happy to see people taking home um, their limits of fish. And I think that's, uh, that's one of the one of the things that's kind of nice, it just kind of takes that weight off your shoulders as a content producer. Cause I, for other fisheries where I am worried about over harvest, 
and conservation, you know, I have to be a lot more careful about what I say and do, um, because as a population biologist, I can deeply understand how over harvest can really impact uh, these fisheries. But with kokanee, I generally don't have to worry about that. Yeah, very cool. Well, Tyler, tonight I just wanted to introduce you to our audience and really just kind of want to learn more about you and what you do. And uh, it was really fun to talk to you. I would love to have you on again sometime and get more tactical and kind of what you do to target these fish. But I think it was fun today. Just get you on talking about what you do and in your YouTube channel and what your background is and what you've been up to. Uh, really fun to talk to you. Was there something that you wanted to bring up tonight that I didn't ask you about? Um, you know, one of the things I always just uh, want to, I don't want to say to any Great Lakes anglers is that um, you guys should be very appreciative of what you have. Um, you know, here in the Northwest, we've really hit a wall on our steelhead and salmon uh, populations. It's last year we had a uh, old town canoe and kayak came out and fished the Columbia River. And they brought uh, some anglers from Wisconsin and, and Chicago out with them who are uh, Chinook anglers on the Great Lakes. And they were just blown away by just how many people we had, how tight the restrictions were, the regulations were, how few fish were allowed to harvest. Uh, it's really a minefield to navigate it here. And we have to do that because we have endangered salmon runs layered right within the hatchery runs that we're allowed to harvest. And these agencies have to, you know, walk a very careful line to not so impact uh, populations that we drive them into an extinction, but still allow us to have harvest. And uh, I, I could tell that those guys from the Great Lakes were just like, wow, we have it so good. We can, we, we, get, we can just relax and there's not that many people out there and there's so many fish for you guys to have. And I'm just jealous every time I see um, all your big, beautiful steelhead. Well, most of our steelhead populations have dropped to the point where we're closing 90%, 80% of our rivers uh, every year now just to keep uh, steelhead alive. This is and this is where your steelhead and Chinook came from. So it always blows my mind to, to see that and think about that. So yeah, be appreciative of what you got. Very good. You can find Tyler on his YouTube channel. It's Spilt Milt Productions, and he's always updating. There's always new stuff on there. Uh, are you on the Instagram or any of those other places, Tyler? Yep. I'm on Instagram at Spilt Milt and on Facebook too. Very cool. So thanks to Tyler Hicks for coming on. And if you want to see something different, from what you're typically seeing out of the Great Lakes, go to his channel because it's it's really some great stuff. And again, if you just want to learn, I think that's the main thing. Just a lot of good educational stuff on there as well. Tyler, thanks for your time tonight. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening to the Great Lakes Fishing Podcast presented by Fishhawk Electronics. For more information on fishing the Great Lakes, visit our blog at fishhawkelectronics.com.